Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, we're going to look at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 10. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up, went to the city of went to Nineveh according to Yahweh's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of the walk of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In forty days Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh, by order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animal must be covered in sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions, that they had turned turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Father, we thank you for a chance to study your word and opportunity this morning. We pray that we would see the glory of your name, the glory of your grace, the glory of your compassion, the glory of your justice. Father, you intend through the book of Jonah to give us your heart for the nations. And so we pray that you would open our hearts to that as you put another piece of the Jonah puzzle in our hearts to help us love our neighbors and the nations with the love that you have for them. So enlarge our hearts, soften our hearts, take the callous off our hearts, take the ho-hum routine familiarity that, that blocks us from feasting and savoring your goodness this morning. Take that away and cause us to taste and see that you are good, to experience the goodness of Christ, and then to walk in your ways. Apart from you, Lord God, we are powerless and unable. So bear fruit, Lord, in your power. In Jesus' name, amen. How do, how do we live so that God uses us in 2018? We want God's love and mercy to flow from us every day, don't we? I mean, we have been blessed by God, and we want to be a blessing to others. We want people to experience the love of God through us, not just in 2018, even for the rest of 2017. So how do we do it? How do we live a life that's fruitful, that's faithful, in channeling the mercy and grace and kindness of God to other sinners, saved and unsaved? We feel this problem because we don't gospelize as often as we want to. Right? We feel convicted. We can say, what's one thing you want to do more in 2018? Almost everyone can say, share the gospel more. Right? That's something that everyone feels like they can grow in. And we actually feel sometimes convicted by it, that we don't gospelize as often as we ought to. And then, on the inside, I mean, if we're honest, sometimes we feel, I feel just defeated. I feel defeated as if I'll never grow in this area. And so, maybe I should just give up. It's not my gift. It's not my thing. Other members are more faithful, and I work in the church, so I don't have the opportunities that other people have at work. And other people at work say, well, if I was at the church, then I'd have all day to share the gospel with people. And so um, we, we, have, we have reasons why we don't share, and if we're honest, we're just oftentimes discouraged and feeling defeated. Well, God gives us the book of Jonah to help us with this. And we're not going to get new answers. Sometimes we get familiar answers. But hopefully we, we feel and experience them in fresh ways so that it feeds our souls and moves us to action. Let me just summarize again the story of Jonah, just to, by way of reminder. You remember in Jonah chapter 1, the word of God comes to Jonah, son of Amittai, and says, Go to the city of Nineveh and tell them and preach against them the word that I tell you. Get up and go. So Jonah gets up and he goes. But he doesn't go 500 miles 
uh, 500 miles this way, which would be um, northeast. Instead, he goes 2,500 miles west, or he tries to go 2,500 miles west by sea. And so on his way, he goes on the boat, he goes down to Joppa from Jerusalem, he goes down to the ship, he goes down to the bottom of the ship, and he, he goes to sea towards, um, towards Tarshish. And as he's on his way there, a storm comes because God is chasing Jonah. They pray and figure out who's wrong. Jonah says, it's my fault. It's because I've been disobeying God. And so um, God is after me, and that's why we have a storm. And the, the solution is for me to be thrown overboard. If you throw me overboard, the storm will stop. And so with that, they throw Jonah overboard. The storm stops. The pagan sailors worship Yahweh. Jonah is drowning, we learned last week. He doesn't go into the fish right away. Some, some, some people are saying that they picture as Jonah was thrown off, the fish catches him in the air before he even touches the water. We learned from Jonah too that that's not the case. That he's there, he's swimming, he's praying, he's slowly drowning, regretting what he's doing while he's up there, calling on God to save him. And then he gets to the bottom of the shore, so the, the bottom of the mountains, and there God saves him with the fish. Okay, miraculously, I would say. Though there's different ways of thinking about it. And so Jonah prays, and I would say he repents because salvation belongs to the Lord, and Jonah was saved. And God brings salvation partially through repentance and necessarily through repentance. And so God spits Jonah back through the fish onto dry land, and then we pick up the story here in Jonah 3. I read to you the story of Jonah 3. Let me summarize it briefly, then we'll go through it in more detail. God sends Jonah a second time, okay? Go back and go to the great city and preach to it. So Jonah goes, he gets up, he goes to the city, and he preaches to the city. As he's walking, he says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Walking around saying that and preaching a message, the people hear it, they're cut to the heart, they repent, they believe the message, and they cry out to God for salvation. They, they start a fast. They, they dress themselves in sackcloth. They sit in ashes. Eventually, the word gets to the king. The king, immediately, he repents. He gets off his throne. He, puts on, uh, he gets off his throne. He takes off his royal robe. He puts on sackcloth. He sits in ashes. And then him and his nobles declare a decree to the whole city and to the whole region that everyone is to repent. Everyone is to turn from their wicked ways. Everyone is to put on sackcloth and sit in ashes. And everyone is to fast. And maybe, just maybe, God will be gracious and relent. Well, God sees what they do, and he relents. So God sends, Jonah obeys, Nineveh responds, and God relents. That would be a short way of summarizing the story. Now, what's the main goal? Okay, so that's a story. What's the main goal of this story for our souls and for our lives? The main goal is this. It's there in your notes. It's not in the title because I actually, that's the title from last week. Sorry for that. But um, the main goal is correct. And the main goal is this. God grants mercy to sinners through you, his messenger. So be faithful. God channels or grants mercy to sinners through his people, through Jonah, through messengers. Now, I could preach this message as us being the Ninevites. We need to repent. We're going to get a little bit of that. We could preach about God's grace. That's True too, but this word is coming to the Israelites in the Old Covenant about their role, and it was to reflect their heart as Jonah. We are Jonah. So I'm applying this message. I think the main goal of this text is for you to feel like Jonah and to be like Jonah in the sense that you need to understand that God's mercy is channeled through you. He grants mercy to sinners through you as his messenger. So you need to be faithful as a messenger because you are Jonah. All right? And to do this, to, to, to have God's sovereign mercy and compassion and grace flow through you as his messenger to others, we need to, we need to grasp three things, okay? And these are not new, but it's just fresh to get it from Jonah's story as our illustration and text for this morning, okay? So I'll tell you the three things, and you can fill out your notes. There's a blank space on the back as well, but here's the three things. Go where God sends you, speak what God tells you, and watch what God shows you. Okay? Go where God sends you. Speak what God tells you. And watch what God shows you. Let's look at these one at a time. And if you do these things, you will be a faithful messenger as God grants mercy through you. So firstly, go where God sends you. 
Go where God sends you. This is verses 1 through 3. So let's look at verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 says, The word of Yahweh came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message I tell you. So here the commission is clearly stated. What's the command? Get up and what? Get up and go. Go to the great city of Nineveh. God sends messengers. God does not just directly um, preach the gospel to people often. It's not most of the time through dreams and visions. It's most often through messengers. So God clearly sends messengers. He commissions them to go. Go get up and go to the great city and preach the message. I tell you, God is clear with his commands. Praise God we have a Bible with clear commands. Even us Christians who have a Bible and believe in the inerrancy and the authority and the clarity of Scripture... Even we can tend to cloud the commands of God in our minds, right? And that's why we disobey. Because we sometimes get distorted and confused and stubborn and disobedient to the point where we act as if God's commission is unclear. As if God stuttered or as if God, as if there's 10 caveats to every command of God. Now, we need to study the whole Bible, and we need to make sure that we're studying every command in the context of the whole Bible, and yet, God's commands are clear. Jonah, get up, go to the city of Nineveh. There's clarity there in that commission. And not only that, it says in verse 1, go back to verse 1, the word of Yahweh came to Jonah. And then he says, preach the message that I tell you. So you don't only have a clear commission, you have a, um, you have a message stated, or there's a message that's going to be sent. God doesn't just send you there to love your neighbors and do good things for them. God doesn't send you to your neighbors to um, help them with their food, though that's a good thing to do. God doesn't send you to your neighbors to water their lawn, though that's a good thing to do. God doesn't send you to your neighbors to just be friends and shoot the breeze with them and then go to their funeral and say, oh yeah, he was a good, he was a good neighbor. We had good conversations about politics and weather and, um, and our city. No conversations about God, just... We just, we're good friends, and I love my neighbor as I love myself. That is not the Great Commission. Amen. That is not what God tells you to do. God is clear with what he tells you to do. He's clear with Jonah. Don't just go up and be nice to the city of Nineveh. Don't just do good things for your neighbors in Nineveh. Go to them and preach. I have a word to give you, and you are to give that word to others. So it's not just a messenger who is sent. You have a message that is sent. Okay? God's message, um, God's message must be clearly communicated, and that's going to be our second point here. But not all, so you have this, you have the clear commission, you got the message sent, and now we have this, the messenger sent. And who's the messenger here? What's his name? Jonah. And the word comes to in verse one a second time, a second time. In other words, God gave this command before. If you read Jonah one one, it's almost the same. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah, son of. Amittai, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. A second time, the same command essentially comes to Jonah. In other words, Jonah is given a second chance. Question for you. How many times has God commissioned you to go and make disciples because you have previously not obeyed? How many times have you been convicted because God told you to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I command you, and you have to hear that command and be convicted of it over and over and over again because you don't just go the first time. Praise God, we have a God who gives second chances. That is not a license to disobey. That ought not to, if you're you're hearing the word correctly this morning, that ought not to be a motivation to say, well, then it doesn't matter. God's going to give me another chance tomorrow, so I don't have to preach the word today. No, God gives you a second chance so that you would obey because God cares about the people who hear the message, right? Why does God give, this, give it a second time? He cares about Nineveh. We're going to hear that crystal clear in chapter four. God cares about Nineveh. And so he gives the message to Jonah a second time. But you could say, well, why does he give it through Jonah? If God cares about Nineveh, why not just send a different messenger to Nineveh? Well, it's not that just God cares about Nineveh. God cares about Jonah, He cares about you. He doesn't want you to be like, well, I give up on PJ. I told him 10 times. He doesn't get it. So forget PJ. I'm never going to use him again. Let me just use another Christian. What if God did that with us? What if he gave us three chances and after three chances, he stopped saying, I will use you. I give up on you. Three strikes and you're out. 
How many of us would be walking around with joy and gladness and being fruitful and effective in our evangelistic ministry? Not many of us, right? Maybe not any of us. Praise God, he not only cares about our neighbors and the nations that need to hear the gospel, he cares about us. He cares about you. That's why he keeps telling you to make disciples. It's not that God needs you as if God is weak, right? And God can't use other people. God's arm is not too short to save. Our God is in the heavens. Our God does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. God is sovereign. He can and will save people. But he chooses to use us. He chooses to use people. And for that, we should be grateful. So the messenger is sent. And so what does Jonah do in response to the second commission in verse 2? Or verse 3? It says in verse 3, Jonah what? He got up and went. Now, that's almost the same as the beginning in chapter 1. Get up and go to Nineveh. Jonah got up and went, but he went the other way. This time, Jonah gets up and goes, but which way does he go? He goes towards Nineveh. He takes a 500-mile trek northeast to Nineveh. He obeys God's command. And then in verse 3, it says, Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Now, this is an unfortunate um, translation where it says it was an extremely great city. You want to know what it says literally? In the Hebrew, it says, Nineveh, now Nineveh was a great city to God. Now, if you know anything about Hebrew, um, the word for God, uh, you might have heard it before, so I'll just say the word because it's familiar to you. Elohim, you guys have heard that word before. Elohim, the im in Hebrew is a plural. So it can be translated as uh, the great city to, the, to God or the great city to the gods, plural. Well, they were idolaters. They worshipped probably a lot of gods. So it could have been a great city with a lot of idolatry. That might be what it means. But I tend to think it's not just that it's an extremely great city. It's a great city to God himself, the triune God. Amen. Why do I think that? What does it say at the very end of the book? Doesn't it say at Jonah 4, verse 10 or 11, should I not care about this city? God says to Jonah, I care about this city. So God cares about Nineveh. God values the city. He cares about the city. He has a heart for the city. Now, he wasn't impressed by their economics, their military prowess, their halls of learning, especially not their religion, because it was idolatrous, right? Nothing to be impressed by there. Why did God care about the city? Well, in Jonah chapter 4, we learn because there's what? 120,000 people there. God cares about the city because there's a lot of people there. That's why cities are important. It's not that God doesn't care about the rural areas of the world. But now in, our history, in, in world history, now the, the, um, the majority of the population lives in cities, in the world, in metro areas. Think about Bellflower, for example. Our city here, Bellflower, did you know that our city is more dense than Chicago? More dense than Miami? More dense than Houston and Phoenix and Seattle? Our population density here? We've got more people per square mile here than in those cities? Now, Southeast L.A. County has 1.3 million people, 1.3 million residents in our, in our region. Cities are marked by density and diversity. There's a lot of people in a small space, and there's a lot of diversity, socioeconomic, ethnic, and so on. You've got a lot of immigrants in cities. God cares about Bellflower. God cares about L.A. because there's a lot of people in L.A. There's 19 million people in metro L.A., um, and 10 million in the, in the county. And so God cares about it. And so we ought to have a heart for the city of L.A., for the region of L.A., for our cities, and for the cities of the, of the world, even the ethnic people groups. So God sends Jonah here. And the, the, point, the main point here is go where God sends you. God sent Adam to the Garden of Eden to take care of it and to spread his glory through image bearers. God sent Abraham to the Promised Land. God sent Moses back to Egypt to bust out the Israelites from slavery. God sent Israel to the promised land to set up his kingdom there. God sent David to Jerusalem to set up his palace and to set up the temple with Solomon. God sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus. God sent Jesus. That's what we're talking about on Christmas, right? The incarnation of the Lord, that, that the Son of God comes from heaven to earth. God sent Jesus to save his people from their sins. God intends to win people and glorify his name through sending people. God is a purposeful God. God is a sending God. God sends you. He sends his people to make his glory known and make his grace known so that he gathers his people to celebrate in the Trinitarian party for all eternity on the new earth. 
And so that's why God sends us as well. Isn't that what John 20, 21, and 23 says? Listen to John 20, 21, and 23. This is what Jesus says. Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. He's talking to the disciples. After saying this, he breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. God sent the disciples. Jesus sent, God the Father sent the Son. The Son sent his people, his church, into the world to proclaim forgiveness of sins through Christ. So you are sent, right? So go where God sends you. Go therefore and what? What's the command? Go therefore and what? Make what? Make disciples. Disciple your neighbors, disciple your church members, and disciple the nations. Disciple, disciple, disciple. Go and disciple where God sends you. Now, if I'm, you're saying, well, where did God send me? I'm not a missionary. I'm not sent to another, I'm not crossing a culture and crossing a geographic space. True, but aren't you sent here? You are sent wherever God sends you, wherever God has you. That's what Acts 17, Acts 18, no, Acts 17 says, that God appoints a time and places where people will live. It's not an accident that you live here in Los Angeles County. It's not, it's not an accident that you're in Southern California now for this season of your life. It's not an accident that you're a member of this church. It's not an accident that you have the neighbors you have. It's not an accident that you have people living in your home that you have living in your home. It's not an accident that you have the coworkers and classmates that you have at work and school. God sent you here. He sent you here Amen. for his purposes, for his glory. So you need to, brothers and sisters, embrace the sent mentality. Know that you are sent here and live with purpose. One of the questions I ask members of our church when they miss a Sunday gathering is, where did God send you this Sunday? It's not a guilt trip question. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I am very curious to know where God sent you because everywhere you go is where God sends you. And you need to have that mentality. You need to go where God sends you and you need to not go where God does not send you, right? You can disobey and go where God isn't sending you. You need to go where God sends you and not go where God is not sending you. And then you need to go and, and preach the gospel, as we're going to get to in the next point. What does this mean for us as a church family? It means that we need to, Bethany Baptist Church, if you're a member of this church, we need to give and we need to send. We need to give to missions. That's why we have the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. We have a goal. We'd like to break past that goal. Why? Because we are responsible as Christ's church to send missionaries around the world. There's no greater thing you could spend money on this Christmas than, than world missions. There's nothing greater than, than giving money to send missionaries to unreached and unengaged people who don't even know the gospel. English is saturated. The English-speaking world is saturated with the gospel. And we have a lot of work to do in our English-speaking world. But there are, there are 3,000 people, people groups with languages that don't even have anyone who can speak the gospel in their language. And they're guilty before God for their sins. We need to give for that cause. Amen. Not only do we need to give for that cause, we need to send for that cause. We need to send people. We need to send missionaries. We, we, did you know that every Sunday, I don't know if you noticed here, every Sunday in our bulletin, at the very bottom after our last hymn, there's a send-off. Have you guys noticed that? Have you noticed the word send-off there? Why is there a send-off? Who's being sent? We are. We are gathering together to be sent out together. We send each other off as a congregation to make Christ known as a member of this church in our world. You are sent all the time. And so, brothers and sisters, pay attention at the end of our services. The send-off is not meaningless Bible verses being read. It's a reminder from God and from your church family that you are sent to where you're going this week. So send people every Sunday. And let's pray that we would send short-term missionaries. Let's pray and plan to send long-term missionaries. I would love for our church to be a, to be a missions-minded church. It's not just giving. It is giving. But some Southern Baptist churches and some other churches can brag about their missions-mindedness just because they give. Giving is crucial. It is necessary. We have to be thankful for that. But we ought to not be satisfied with that. There needs to be a holy discontentment in our souls that we as a church need to be sending people. Sending people to the nations. Now, how are we going to do that? Well, we, need, we want to send them there long term. But to do that often, you know what we need to do? Is send them short term. Maybe we should have in our budget, it's too late for this year, though it's not too late, we could always have a business meeting. But maybe in our future, we need to have a budget line where we have a budget line for short term missions. Short term missions grants. Where we grant so that, you know, our International Mission Board has short-term missions for Southern Baptist members to go on short-term missions because that awakens their heart for long-term missions. 
Maybe we should be giving to that. Short-term missions and long-term missions. Let's pray that we would send people. And let's ask ourselves. This week, you're going to be praying for missionaries. Next week, we're going to talk about missions again. You need to be praying this week, every week, or every year, at least for one week, I want our church members praying, God, do you want me to go? Do you want me to go to the nations? May God forbid that any church member gets so comfortable with, with Southern California that they don't even ask the question. May God soften our hearts for the nations that we don't rust out here in Southern California in our comfort when there are people dying, entering a Christless eternity while we sit around and enjoy drifting off into the sunset. That's not the Christian mentality. So every year, I'm going to pray this for myself this week. You need to pray it for yourself. Pray it for your family. God, do you want me to go? Our lives are, like David Platt likes to say, a blank check, right? You give your life to God. God, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, just tell me, and I'll do it. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And maybe we need to send some of our, I'd love to send some of our small groups eventually and some of our members to plant and revitalize churches in Los Angeles too. I mean, we have a lot of growing to do in this church, but let's not be fooled as if the goal is to fill up this this church building with chairs or fill up the seats with people. There are 80,000 people in Bellflower and we have 135 chairs. It would be ridiculous to celebrate as if we filled up the church building with people and 135 members that we've, we've made it. We need to send out and plant and revitalize more churches even in Los Angeles. All right, so go where God sends you. If you're not a Christian, do you realize that God has sent messengers to you to give you the gospel because God loves you? If you're a non-Christian, you're here this morning, do you realize that God sent us, this church family, to speak to you this morning because God loves you and God cares for you? He does. God has sent messengers to you because he cares for you. Listen to what God is telling you. If you're retired, your disciple-making work is not done yet. You thought, well, I'm retired now. I don't have to work anymore. No, you got more time to work. You got more time for the Great Commission. You have more time to make disciples. Not less, you have more time. Your work isn't done yet. That's why God hasn't taken you yet. Why am I still here? The reason why you're still here is because whether you're retired or not, the reason you're still alive is because God isn't done using you to make disciples. So finish up your work. Hurry up. Get your work done. Go make disciples. And then get to your reward, right? Living is Christ and dying is? Gain. Gain. Let's get to our reward. Let's finish up our work here. Let's make disciples. If you're in the workforce, realize God sent you to your workplace to make disciples. Again, students, go to your schools and learn that you might be a disciple maker. Kids, God sent your parents to you to make Christ known to you. And guess what, kids? If you trust in Christ, God also sends you to your friends and to your family. So go walk in his ways. All right, so God grants mercy to sinners through you as a messenger, so be faithful. If you're discouraged about your mission, just realize God is sending you back again this week. Man, I'm a failure in my disciple making. Hey, God's sending you again this week. Go back at it, and he's going to go with you. Secondly, so go where God sends you. Secondly, speak what God tells you. Speak what God tells you. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, So Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. So here we see two things, that Jonah engages, the messenger engages, and then the messenger preaches. The messenger engages and the messenger preaches. So speak what God tells you, which means you need to actually make contact with your people first. Don't make the mistake generally of just speaking out into the wild as if people just hear you. You know, I'm not not against people at a corner with a megaphone just preaching. That's great, but most people... 99, 100% of our members will not be gospelizing that way. You will have to engage them as people first. You'll have to get to know them first as people. You'll have to make contact with them and have conversation with them and get to know their name and where they're from and why they're in L.A. and a little bit about their story and what their burdens are and how you can love them and bless them. And as you get to engage them and know them, then you get to speak to them. So brothers and sisters, engage. Go and connect with non-Christians. Go and connect with your neighbors. Bless them, find their needs, and and speak an encouraging word or do an encouraging action for them, a deed. Listen to their story. I'm just going to go through bless, right? Bless, listen, eat, speak, Sabbath. So bless them. Listen to their stories. Listen to their burdens. Be a listening ear. You know being a listening ear is an act of love? Just listening to people is loving them if you're listening intently. So be a listening ear. And then as you listen to them, eat with them. Have meals with them. Put it in your monthly budget 
to, to have meals with non-Christians. I guarantee you, if you have meals with non-Christians, you'll have opportunities to share the gospel. Not every time you have a meal, but I guarantee if you're regularly eating with non-Christians, you will see opportunities and open doors for gospelizing. So have meals with them. Eat with them. And then Sabbath with them, which means go on vacation with them. Go hang out with them. Go do recreational activities with them. Go play with your neighbors. As, a, as our church, Bethany Baptist Church, we need to know, our na- well, actually, our neighbors need to know that we exist. Do you know that within a one-mile radius of this building, we have 39,000 residents? 39,000 people living one mile from this building. That's 11,674 households with an average of 3.3 people per household. 11,000 households a mile from here. And guess what? Our neighbors don't even know we exist. They might see the building, but they don't know any of us. They don't know we exist to serve them and love them. Here's what Brian Howard writes. How many people in your neighborhood have ever heard of your church? For many of us, the answer is few. But how can we expect to make a real impact on our communities if 90% of the people that we hope to impact don't even know that your church exists? How can we impact our neighborhood when they don't even know we're here? I mean, they see the building. They see our new sign, our website. But they don't know we're here. They don't know any of us. We need to let them know we exist. That's the first step. Just engage your city, right? Okay, so one of my goals for 2018, I don't know exactly what, how we're going to formulate this goal, but one of my goals is how many people, Lord, do you want us to continually, continuously remind that we are their neighbors in their neighborhood to serve them and point them to Jesus? Even if they never come, at least, Lord, let the 39,000 residents one mile from our building, know that Bethany Baptist Church, our 67 members, are here as their neighbors to love them and serve them and point them to Jesus. God, please let them see that. Please let them know that. I mean, if 39,000 people hear about that and 20 come, is that not okay? Is that not a win of some sort? Right? They don't even know we're here. And yet we have a chance. To engage them. But not only is, does the messenger engage, but the message is preached. Okay, going to verse 4. What does Jonah preach in verse 4? In 40 days, what? In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. He opened his mouth and spoke. You can't just love your neighbors indeed only. You have to speak. And his message was, was his message a happy message that people would love to hear? Thank you for that good news that we are going to be demolished in 40 days. That's not a happy message. But it's God's message, right? Amen. And you're not, you're not an editor allowed to edit God's message to people. You are a mailman. You deliver the mail. You don't write it. You just tell them what God said. You're a messenger. And so here's a message, and it's a message of judgment. And here's my question, one of my questions. Was his message this short? How many of you say Jonah's message was this short? Raise your hand. How many of you say his message was longer than this? And there's a summary. All right. Um, I, would, I, I would certainly lean towards it being a longer, a longer message. I mean, it's the same thing in Matthew 10, 7, I would think, where, where, God says, where Jesus sends out the 70 disciples and he says, go preach and tell them that the kingdom of God is near. I doubt that the disciples just went around saying, the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is near. And they just go to every village and say, the kingdom of God is near. Um, same thing with Jesus, where it says in, in Mark 1, 15, 1, 14, 15, Jesus comes on the scene after John the Baptist, and he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That is not the only thing Jesus said. That is a summary statement of the message of Jesus. Doubtless there would be conversation. I mean, can you imagine people hearing that in 40 days their, their city is going to be destroyed, and they don't say anything and ask any questions? Or Jonah's like a parrot? where they ask him questions and he doesn't answer their question, he just repeats the same thing over and over? You think that sounds convincing to people? Oh, okay, I'm going to repent now because you just keep repeating the same phrase over and over and over again. I don't think it means that it's, the, it's a short message in that regard, though it could be. I, I don't want to say for sure it wasn't. And here's why. Jonah is, what's his nationality? What's his ethnicity? He's a what? Jew. He's a Jew. He's an Israelite. And what are these Ninevites? They're Assyrians. There's a language barrier, right? I mean, maybe Jonah didn't know the language and he only knew the five words in Assyrian and just spoke those words, right? I mean, if I told you, go preach in Arabic, the gospel, 
If God said, go preach the gospel in Arabic to, um, you know, to Saudi Arabia next week, you might just learn the gospel message, Christ died for your sins, repent and believe, and then just say those words, right? I mean, that's all, that's all you're going to get in a week, probably. But So it is possible that's a short message, but, but let's not dwell too long on that. Um, let, let's think about his message a little bit more. His message here was a message of judgment. You are going to be judged in 40 days. This, this place is going to be destroyed. Why would this place be destroyed in 40 days? According to Jonah 1 verse 2. Look at Jonah 1 verse 2. Go to the great city and preach against it. Why? Because their evil has what? Their evil has come up. So Jonah is saying, you are evil. You are sinners. You are evil. You are wicked. You are sinful before God. And God is going to condemn and judge you. You are damned. And in 40 days, you will be destroyed. That's not a happy message. That's a hard message for us to tell our neighbors and our family. And yet, that's the message that God gives. You know, when Paul was there before Felix, his, his message was righteousness and the judgment to come. Righteousness, faith, and the judgment to come, I think it is. God is righteous. Sinners don't like to hear God is righteous. God punishes sins. Sinners don't like to hear that God punishes sins. And yet, that's the message. And Jonah Spoke and he said, "In forty days it will be demolished." Does anyone have a different translation of what's going to happen to the city? Give me a different translation. Shout it out. Overturned. Okay, forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's a good translation. It's the same word used for Sodom and Gomorrah, of what happened to them. And what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire rained down from heaven and destroyed those cities. So this is talking about utter destruction of the city. For 40 days, and the city will be overturned. But did you know that that word overturned in Hebrew has a second meaning? It also means transformed or turned around. Not just overturned, but turned around. In 40 days, the city will be overturned and destroyed. Or, in 40 days, the city will be turned around in repentance. You can actually translate. It's a legitimate translation the other way. Now, I think Jonah's not preaching it, hoping for turning around repentance. Jonah's preaching it as, you guys are going to be destroyed. And yet, God, that second meaning is kind of embedded in, in the message itself, there, that this is a message of hope. Not only because of that, because of that translation of that word, at least in the Hebrew. I don't know if Jonah preached in Hebrew. But God's message of judgment has implicit hope. Listen to Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8. This is what God says through Jeremiah. This is later, but uh, 200 years later. But at one moment, I might, this is God speaking, at one moment I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, and destroy it. However, If that nation about which I have made the announcement turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the disaster I had planned to do to it. So every time God says, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, implicit in that cry of judgment is mercy, is hope, it's a chance. Why would God say, why not just bring the judgment? Isn't God righteous to just bring judgment already? Does he have to announce it first? No, he doesn't have to announce it first. But if he does, guess what that is? Mercy, grace, the very fact that God is telling you you're going to be condemned for your sins is love from God to get you out of that condemnation. It's embedded there. Hope is embedded in the declaration of judgment. And so we too, brothers and sisters, are to go out and preach the good news. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. He said this to his disciples. He said, um, don't take, don't, uh, he says here in Matthew Chapter 10, um, verse 12. Greet a household when you enter it, and if a household is unworthy, let your peace be on it. But if it's unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or that town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for, for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of them, because they'll hand you over to the local courts to flog you in their synagogues. You'll even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles, to the nations. But when they hand you over, listen to this, don't worry about how or what you will speak, for you will be given what to say at that hour. Because it isn't you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father is speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and the father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. What is Jesus saying here? Speak. Speak God's word. Speak what God tells you. And guess what? He will help you. 
His Spirit will help you. But, brothers and sisters, I need to say it here. I need to be the bearer of honest truth here, not just happy thoughts. You will be opposed by some of your family. You will be opposed by some of your friends. You will be opposed by some of your neighbors. And guess what? If you're a Christian, you have to be. You have to be opposed. Now, don't be a jerk. Don't be mean. Don't be harsh and be hated for that reason. Be loving and clear with what God tells you to say. And if they don't like you for that, Jesus says, if the world hates you, the world, what, hated me before it hated you? It's not you that they're hating and rejecting ultimately, it's Christ. But brothers and sisters, you don't have a choice. You don't get to edit God's message. You don't get to not speak to your neighbors. You don't get to not speak to your family members. You have to speak. You're obligated to speak and you're privileged to speak. You get to be a messenger of God's mercy to sinners. So brothers and sisters, Christians here, speak. You know, there's this famous quote, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. Have you heard that before? Is that right or wrong? wrong? Wrong, right? That's like saying, tell me the news of the fires going on in Southern California, and if necessary, use words. Tell me how you're doing lately, and if necessary, use words. What? How, do I, how can I tell you, how can I preach something to you if I can't use words? You have to use words. Now, does, now I, what do we, what's good about this quote? Not only should you use words, but you should back it up with your what? Life. Life. You should be repenting. You should be humble. You should be broken and clinging to Christ yourself. You should be honest with your sin and showing that you need a Savior. And you should be walking in repentance. That, that's what it means by, use, by your life, but yet you are to preach Christ. So brothers and sisters, preach Christ. It says in Colossians 1, 20 and 29, we proclaim Him. If you're not a Christian, you're saying, okay, Peter, you're telling, you're telling everyone here to speak what God tells them. What about me? Am I to speak what God tells me? Well, the answer, short, I mean, sort of yes. But the, the answer before that is, before you speak what God tells you, you need to hear what God's telling you, right? And what is God telling you? If you're not a Christian, what is God telling you this morning? This is what God's telling you. That judgment is coming for you. That in a, in a, in a short while, you will die. And it's appointed for man to die once, and then comes Judgment. And the wages of sin is death. God is holy and righteous. You are a sinner and I am a sinner. And we deserve God's judgment and condemnation. That's God's message to you this morning. But that's not where his message stops. His message goes on to say that if that he sent Jesus Christ to come and take that judgment for you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead. He took the judgment so that if you repent from your sins and believe in Jesus this morning, you will be saved. saved. That's God's message to you, non-Christian friend. Repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. Hear the message, understand the message, ask questions about the message, but get the message. Hear it. And, and, and church family, guess what we need to do? We need to hear the message too, don't we? And we need to repent and believe regularly. Okay? So God grants mercy to sinners through you, his messengers. So let's be faithful by going where God sends us, and speaking what God tells us. And lastly, thirdly, watch what God shows you. Verses 5 through 10. Watch what God shows you. So what happens here? Look at verse 5. So here's the message. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And then, what's the response in verse 5? Then the people of Nineveh, what? Believed God. The people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And Jonah sort of knew this would happen. Notice that Jonah says here uh, in Jonah chapter 3, the word of God comes to Jonah, preach to the city. What does it say in Jonah 1 verse 2? Preach what? Look at the verb, or the, 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 what's that called? Not the adjective, the preposition. What's the preposition difference? Not preach to the city. In Jonah 1 2, preach what? Against the city. This one is a little bit different. There's there's, There's more grace in this one. Preach to the city. Okay, now, so what do they do? What's their response? What did they do? Two things. They repented and they believed. believed, right? They repented and believed. There was faith and repentance in the initial hearers of Jonah's message. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And they're like, I believe that. We are going to be destroyed. Wait, why are we going to be destroyed? Because of your sins and because of your evil and because of your selfishness and your idolatry and your oppression of other people and your self-centeredness. And they are cut to the heart and they repent and believe. Faith came by what? 
hearing the word. You have to speak the word, and the response we're aiming at, we can't control the response, but faith came by hearing the word of Christ. Now, what did they believe? They don't know about Jesus yet. This is 750 years before Jesus, probably. And so, what did they hear? What did they believe? Well, they believed that they were, that in 40 days, Nineveh would be what? Destroyed. They, they believed that. What else did they believe? They believed that they were sinners, right? They had to believe they were sinners. Well, we deserve this judgment, and so it's right for God to judge us. It's right for Yahweh, your God, to judge us. Okay, he's the God of heaven and earth. He made the earth and the seas. I guess we're in trouble with him. I believe that. I believe I'm a sinner. So they had to believe that. And then they had to believe that God was giving them a chance. Maybe they didn't know for sure, but they had to lean towards the fact that why would God send a messenger to tell us this and say, we're being destroyed right now. Why 40 days? God seems to be giving us time. We're giving a chance. And so they had to believe, maybe, or assume, or presume to some degree, that God wanted wanted them to respond. Not with indifference. Well, I guess God said it, so we might as well live it up for the last 40 days. Not that. Or not further rebellion or resistance. They must have knew that God wanted them to respond in repentance. And they must have thought that God would be merciful, or likely would be merciful if they repented. Actually, that's the way the Hebrew reads. It's not just, oh, maybe somehow... Uh, 50-50, it's a leaning towards the, the presumption is that God would likely be relenting, at least according to one Hebrew teacher. Now, perhaps they believed that the reason this messenger was here was that God was giving them a chance. So what do they do? They believe God, it says in verse 5, and it says they proclaimed a fast. A fast is refraining from what? Refraining from food and drink. So they're going to refrain from food, and they dressed in what? Sackcloth. From the greatest of them to the least. Now, why fasting and sackcloth? Fasting is a way of just depriving yourself of food so that you feel your need for food, but you have a greater need for who? For God. And it's a way of of kind of heightening your senses and your need for God by by, um, not filling your need for other things. So when you don't fill your stomach with food, you feel your need for food. And it's a reminder, it's a constant reminder that you need God. You need his mercy. You need his grace. You need his forgiveness. At least that's for them. And why sackcloth? Sackcloth was a thick, rough, dark-colored material made of goat hair often or camel hair. It was rough. It was uncomfortable. And people would put that on their skin. And it often involved self-humbling and mourning. Mourning was the chief reason for wearing sackcloth. In Joel 1a, it talks about wives who lose their husbands putting on sackcloth because they're grieving that their husbands have passed away. It's a sign of grief, of mourning. Ahab did this in 1 Kings 21, verses 27 and 29. When he heard the words of God, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth over his body, and fasted. He laid down in sackcloth, very uncomfortable, and walked around subdued. And then God forgave Ahab. In Joel 1.8, I told you already, it says, Grieve like a young woman dressed in sackcloth, mourning for the husband of her youth. A young woman, a young widow, grieving over her husband who passed away. Mourning over that. So it's a brokenness, it's a mourning, and it's a grieving over sin. Joel 1.13 and 14, Dress in sackcloth and lament, you priests. Wail, you ministers of the altar. Come and spend the night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God, because grain and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Announce a sacred fast. Proclaim an assembly. Gather your elders and all the residents of the land at the house of Yahweh your God and cry out to the Lord. That was Joel's message for Israel. Don't just repent and say, I repent. We do a prayer of confession here. We didn't have Lance or you. We don't have sackcloth under your chairs, you know. So during the prayer of confession, you pull out your sackcloth and everyone, you know, go to the, go to the bathroom, go change into your sackcloth. Let's here have our prayer of confession and let's continue. We're not saying that you have to do that. But the, the point of it is what Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Amen. Do you mourn over your sin? Not the consequences of your sin. Not the inconveniences that your sins create. Do you grieve over the fact that you sin against God? That you violate His holiness? That you spurn His grace? That you disregard His word? That you belittle the cross of Christ? Does that grieve your heart for specific sins in your life? That's what this sackcloth is. It's an expression of grief. Now, what's the relationship between repentance and faith? If you repent, it will always show itself. If you have faith in in what God says, it will always show itself in repentance. Sadly, many churches are okay with Christians professing faith in Christ and showing no signs of repentance. 
That's why we practice membership here, not because we, don't want, we want to be legalistic and have extra requirements for church membership. It's that we understand that if you trust in Christ, it will show in your life, in repentance. Now, why do they repent and believe so quickly? Is that weird? They repent and believe so quickly. It's not because of Jonah's appearance. At least that's not what the text says. But why? God granted them grace. God granted them grace. In Matthew 11, verses 20 to 27, Jesus talks about the fact that, he says, you know, if these signs were shown in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. But, God, but I gave these signs to you. Jesus is in Galilee doing these signs, and you didn't repent, and so they're going to stand in judgment against you. So why did they repent? Because God granted them grace to repent. Because God revealed himself to them. It says in Matthew 11, these are hard words, and I'm going to create theological questions here that I can't answer in the sermon because we're running out of time. But Matthew 11 It says in verse um, 25, I praise you, Father, Jesus says, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, such was your good pleasure. God reveals him, and then says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. God hides his face from the arrogant, and he shows himself to the humble. So God humbled them. God gave them the revelation they needed. And because God's word is powerful, isn't it? God's word created the universe. How did you get saved? Was it not God's word? God's word raises the dead. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, giving life to the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable to train people in righteousness. You are brought forth by the living word of God, it says in James 1.18. You are born again by the Word. The Word of God is, is, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts the soul. God's Word is powerful. And so they heard God's Word and it cut them. You know, 2 Timothy 2.25 and 26, why did they repent? It says in 2 Timothy 2.25, uh, perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Acts 11.18 says that... Um, when, they, when the Gentiles believed God and Peter reported it, the, the, um, the church said, in Jerusalem said, so then God has given repentance, resulting in even salvation for the Gentiles. God gives repentance. Why did they repent? Because God gave his word and God gave them what? Repentance. God gives repentance as a gift. Amen. You don't deserve repentance. You're responsible to repent, but you don't have the ability in yourself often because of our love for sin and our stubbornness. And God melts a hard heart. God softens hardened hearts and he gives them mercy. Or to use 2 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6, God opens the eyes of the blind. The the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the knowledge of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And God says, let there be light. And when you hear the word, the Holy Spirit opens your eyes with the light of God's supernatural power and you believe and you repent. That's what happened to them. That's what happened to you when you got saved. God granted them repentance. And then in verses 6 through 9, you see this faith and repentance spreading, right? When the word reached, when word, it shouldn't be word. Like, it's not the message that people are repenting. It's the actual message of Jonah, I would say. There's a debate about that. But when the word, the message of Jonah, reached the king of Nineveh, what did he do? What was his response? Look at his response. He got up took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in the ashes. And then he issued a decree. So, so what does he do? This is amazing humility. He gets off his throne. He got, off his, he got up off his throne. It's hard, to get a, it's hard to get a dad of the house off their lazy boy, right? Their recliner. Watching TV. How hard is it to get a king off their throne? Right? Get a king off the throne. He got up off the throne. Kings are so jealous for their power. And yet he gets off his throne to humble himself before a god of a foreign nation. He gets off his throne. Now, he's probably a governor. He's probably not the king. Like King Herod, was King Herod the king of, of during Jesus' time? He wasn't the king. He was a governor, really, of, of the Roman emperor. But, but he was called King Herod. And so here, the king of Nineveh, one of the great cities in Assyria, probably not the king. Um, but so what does he do? He gets up off his throne. He takes off his royal robe. He puts on sackcloth, and he sits in ashes. He humbles himself. It's hard to get people blinded by their power to give up their power, and yet he humbles himself. And then it says, he humbles himself, and then he sits in ashes. Instead of sitting on the throne, he sits in ashes. But what's in the middle? He puts off, he takes off his robe, and he puts on what? 
sackcloth. So I want you to see the two, the, the, the first and the fourth thing match. He gets off his throne and he sits in ashes. And the two middle things match. He takes off his robe and he puts on sackcloth. That's the focus of this. It's called a chiasm. But in this middle, if you're a biblical counselor, I know uh, Chris and other members have maybe taken biblical counseling classes. One of the key questions a biblical counselor asks when they're counseling people is, what is my counselee supposed to put off and what are they supposed to put on? You'll see that in Colossians. You'll see that in Ephesians. Put off sin. Put on righteousness. Put off anger. Put on patience. Put off pride. Put on humility. Put off greed. Put on generosity. There's this all over the New Testament letters. And here, he puts off his robe and puts off his power and he puts on sackcloth in repentance. That's what change is. That's biblical change. That God changes your heart, that you say, I'd rather have Jesus, to, to, to quote the hymn, right? I'd rather have Jesus, and I'm going to put off all my personal power. I'm going to count them as rubbish, or as dung, as Paul says, and I'm going to treasure what God says. So what does he, so what, what does he command? What's the decree to the nobles? Verse 7. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal or herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. So stop what you're doing. Stop what you're eating. No person, animal, herd or flock. Stop it. Don't eat. Instead, grieve. Now this, then it says mourning. So not only are they stopping their food and, and intentionally increasing their senses towards God. In verse 8 it says, Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered in sackcloth. Let's get uncomfortable and mourn over our sins, not just the consequences. Even animals? Animals should be mourning over their sin? Well, apparently, right? Now this is satire. It's supposed to be funny, and it is funny, but it's also partly, I would assume, true at the same time. But it's funny because here you have animals repenting and, and, um, and mourning. You have the Ninevites, this wicked, brutal people, mourning. You have sailors mourning over their sin. And then you have Jonah, who's a stubborn, hard-hearted prophet. Even the animals are responding, and yet Israel doesn't respond where Jonah's a prophet. They're rank in idolatry there where Jonah was prophesying. And then Jonah himself is hard-hearted. And, and doesn't God care about animals too? Yes. He does, right? He cares about all creation. Romans 8 says all of creation is groaning. Uh, so the animals are groaning. And not only that, when they're mourning, it says after that, cry out to God. Why, why do the animals need to, why do you need to do this to animals? Let me give you two other guesses on why, why this is happening. So, um, another guess is that um, when the animals are mourning, doesn't that, now, Gene's uh, Jean, uh, not here, but uh, I didn't grow up with animals. Most of us didn't in, in our generation, but some people did. If you don't feed an animal for a few days, are they just nice and, and obedient and quiet? If you're not feeding animals for days, what, ha- what, what do they start to do? They start to make noise. They start to cry out and mourn. So imagine the whole city, no one's eating, not even animals. Imagine the, you're feeling hunger, you're feeling repentance towards God, you hear the, the, the constant groaning and crying of animals for food. That's just all this comprehensive picture of repentance and mourning towards God. Not only that, animals is often money. There's no cash at that point. Animals are your money. So you have comprehensive repentance. It's not just God has a part of my, my religious life. He doesn't have my wallet as well. No, God has everything. This is a comprehensive of, picture of repentance. It's a religious repentance. It's societal repentance. It's pol- political repentance. It's economic repentance. It's repentance of commerce. It's repentance of the whole thing. It's repentance of everything. We are turning everything over to God and turning from our evil ways. And then it says in verse 8, continuing in verse 8, call out to God. Call out earnestly, call out with power, with enthusiasm, with, with, with earnestness, with vigor, with desperation. God, save me. I think of the, the, the um, tax collector with the Pharisee where he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he's beating his chest. He can't even look up to heaven, calling out to God to save him. And then it says, not only that, look at verse 8. Call out earnestly to God. Each one, each one must what? Turn from his what? Turn from his evil ways and wrongdoing. Don't just put on a show. You need to actually repent. You actually need to turn away from your sin and your evil ways. And then verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we won't perish. And does God turn? In verse 10? Yes. God sees their actions. It says in verse 10 that they turn from their evil ways. God sees not only the outside, he also sees their heart, right? And so God relented from the disaster that he threatened them with. And he did not do it. Now, I don't have any time here, but the King James Version says that God repented. That's an unfortunate translation there at that point. It's more accurately God relented. 
Um, but if you have more questions about... God doesn't repent. He knows everything. He even plans to relent. It's part of his plan. And yet God does respond and interact with us humans. Now, why is God merciful? I kind of want to close with these two questions before we apply it and close. Why is God merciful? Why is God merciful and how is he merciful? Why is God merciful? Look at Colossians... Or not Colossians. Look at Jonah 4 verse 2. Why is Jonah mad? Jonah 4 2, the end of verse 2, he says... I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. Why, why, is God, why does God relent? Because he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in what? Faithful love. God is a God of mercy. Do you know where that quote is from? Do you remember when Moses said to God, show me your glory? And, and then God says, I'm going to proclaim my name before you. And he says... Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and steadfastness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So why, why would God relent? Because God is gracious. He's loving. He's merciful. He's kind. He cares. He cares for sinners. He loves you. And yet, so here's the second question. How can God, if he forgives sinners, you know what the rest of that verse says in Exodus 34? But he will by no means clear the guilty he will punish the guilty now is Nineveh guilty or not yes they're guilty did God punish them or not did he destroy their city or not he didn't so is God a liar God you said you're not going to clear the guilty and yet here you clear the guilty that's a lie God have you ever been violated by someone who's a Christian and they sin against you really deeply and you just want to get revenge with all your heart how is God just to just clear their guilt? Doesn't it hurt? Isn't God sinned against? How can God clear the guilty? What's the answer to that? The cross Amen. of Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 3, 26, 24 and 26 says. God justifies the guilty. Verse 25 says, God presented Jesus as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith, to demonstrate his justice, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. Why doesn't he punish Nineveh? Because he passed over their sins and punished who? Christ. Why does he punish Abraham? Because he passed over Abraham's sins and punished Christ. Why did he punish David for his adultery? Because he passed over David's sins and punished Christ. Why doesn't he punish you? Because he passes over your sins and punishes Christ. And yet he's not clearing the guilty because he unites you to Christ. And he punishes you and the Ninevites and everyone else who's united to Christ by faith. So can God forgive sinners? Yes or no? Yes, because he's compassionate. Can God still be righteous when he forgives sinners? Yes. yes, because he sent his son to take the damnation and the condemnation you deserve. So God relents from those who are repentant. Again, if you're not a Christian, repent and trust in Jesus. If you're a Christian, what should we do? We need to expect a response. We need to um, watch God work. As you share the gospel, what is Jonah seeing? He's seeing God work. God is actively transforming the, the people. And as you share the gospel with people, you get to see people, either their hearts get harder or their hearts get softer. And sometimes their hearts get harder before they get softer. You get hard in someone's heart and they get harder, 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 and then God just shatters it and they get saved, like Ahab. Or it could be a permanent hardening like Pharaoh. We don't know. But the point is this. Every time you gospelize someone, guess what you get a front row to seeing? God working. God acting. God working in people. We are an aroma of life to life. And we're aroma of death to death to those who are perishing, 2 Corinthians 2 says. So brothers and sisters, expect a response. And I would say, this is an application for next week, celebrate repentance when people repent. As a church family, let's expect God to powerfully be working in us through his word. And if you're not a Christian, you need to repent. Like this text says, if you are a Christian who's not part of a church, you need to continue to repent and join a church where you can walk in God's ways with God's people, continually living by faith and repentance. Okay, so to summarize, brothers and sisters, go where God sends you, speak what God tells you, watch what God shows you because God grants mercy to sinners through you as his messenger. So how are you guys doing? How are we doing with this? We doing well? Maybe not so well. How are we doing with going? How are we doing with speaking? And how are we doing with watching? Not too well. But there's someone who did perfectly. Didn't Jesus go? God sent him to earth, and he humbled himself and became a servant. Did Jesus speak? Yes, Jesus spoke all the words that God said, and not a word more, not a word less. And did Jesus see God work through his speaking and his going? Absolutely. Isaiah, Isaiah 51, 53 says this, God will crush the servant, 
And when you make a guilt offering, or when he makes a guilt offering, he, Jesus, will see his seed. He will see light and be satisfied. Jesus is the perfect messenger who went where God sent him, who said what God told him, and who sees God work through him. And God works in us through Jesus as well. So brothers and sisters, let's pray, let's go, let's speak, let's see God work. And if we don't, we will, people won't hear the gospel and the enemy will keep us down and discouraged. Yes. But if we go and if we speak and if we see God work, we'll take baby steps or big steps of growth. We will encounter, people will encounter Jesus through our lives and through our words. God will extend his saving mercy to some and save them. And we will rejoice in blessing others. Father, please help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. Use our money to spread the gospel here in Los Angeles through our general giving to this church and use our money to spread the gospel throughout the world through our cooperative program giving and through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Help us to send messengers around the world. Help us to partner with messengers around the world and help us to do our faithful part here, remembering that you send us this week to make you known, to speak your word, to speak judgment and grace, and to see you work. So show us your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.